Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. America is arguably the most gun-loving nation in the world. In fact, of the 8 million guns manufactured each year for civilian purposes, more than half are bought here in the United States. And while the United States only accounts for 5% of the world population, we purchase, or we own, between 35 and 50% of all guns. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law, the home of cutting-edge legal thought. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking about gun regulation, and we're fortunate to have a nationally recognized expert on the topic. John Donahue, economist, lawyer, and professor at Stanford Law School. Professor Donahue, welcome back to Talks on Law. Great to be with you, Joe. To begin with, do we have a national obsession with guns? Certainly the United States, as you, your introduction suggested, is more heavily armed at the civilian level than any other nation on Earth. So in, in that sense, uh, uh, both in terms of just the raw number of guns and the amount of gun issues that are at play in the culture and in the political realm, I think you can say we, we are at a level of obsession, sure. When we're talking the raw numbers, how does it compare with the population? The number of guns versus the number of people? You know, the, the interesting thing is the, the number of guns keeps rising very sharply, but the, uh, there, there's a debate about what's happening to the percentage of homes that, that own guns. And, and my interpretation of the data is that fewer and fewer households are, are owning guns, but the ones that have guns are owning more and more guns. So that if you are a household with guns, you probably don't have one, you, you have many guns. Um, but um, over time, it does seem to be a, a decline in the percentage of households that do have guns. So the main protection for those who own guns is the Second Amendment. There's a right to bear arms. How is that not the end of the issue? Well, interestingly, for you know the first 200 years or so of the nation's history, the Second Amendment was interpreted as uh, not being an individual right to keep and bear arms, but rather being a, a, a militia-based right. The first phrase of the Second Amendment is a well-regulated militia being necessary to a free state. And so, uh, the Supreme Court had said, um, you know, going back 50, 60 years ago, that this was a militia-based right, and and all constitutional interpretation of the Second Amendment must recognize that fact. And it really only turned around in 2008 in the Heller decision when the Supreme Court uh, first changed that view and said that there is an individual right to uh, have a gun in the home. And uh, I suspect when the case gets before it, it will say you also have a, a constitutional right to carry it as well. The Heller decision, when, did, when was this case? Uh, Heller was decided in 2008, so relatively recently. It was challenging the District of Columbia's ban on, um, on handguns. Before 2008, the, general, uh, the generally accepted view the constitutional view, was that you have a right to bear arms in forwarding your state's militia or as part of state's defense. Yeah, the, the, the traditional view had been that um, 
the, the states, when the uh, Constitution was uh, amended, wanted to uh, retain the right to have uh, their, their own national guards in the common language of today, and therefore they wanted their citizens to uh, uh, be armed so that they could create these citizen militias. There, was, there were fears about standing armies. Over time, of course, we've gotten away from that, and the, the federal government is the only one with a standing army of, of any magnitude. As of 2008, the first phrase of the uh, amendment has essentially been ruled out by the, the Supreme Court. Ironically, it was Justice Scalia who wrote the decision in Heller, and Scalia has, has always argued uh, the importance of reading the text carefully, um, but then he essentially read the first uh, half of the amendment out of uh, his interpretation of, of the text. And doesn't Scalia generally go for the original interpretation of the text as well? He seems to have stumbled badly. In, in terms of uh, the articulated rationale, almost everything that Justice Scalia uh, said was, was incorrect. Uh, it, it was clearly an amendment that was uh, designed to promote uh, the military use of weapons when it refers to the militia. And when he interpreted it, he said, you don't have a right to military weapons, but the, the sort of common handguns that are, are used for personal defense, uh, you have a constitutional right to. So in terms of the original understanding, he got everything completely backwards. Uh, but now that's the law of the land, at least on, on, unless and until uh, uh, the Supreme Court revisits the question. Well, you mentioned a distinction. There are guns and there are guns. Mm -hmm. So where, I, let's delve into that a little bit. You may have a right to a shotgun. You may have a right to a small handgun. Where can regulation step in? Well, in, in Heller, the, uh, the court addressed that issue by saying that uh, guns that are in common use uh, will be constitutionally permissible. And so there is a lot of litigation going on right now uh, about where you can draw the line. So for example, um, a number of states have passed laws restricting the size of the magazine. So high capacity magazines are- The magazine is the, is the part of the gun that holds, holds the bullets. Exactly. And so um, the states that have imposed restrictions on that are now being sued. And one of the defenses is that there are millions of these high capacity magazines in, in use in the United States and therefore that should be deemed in common use. Supreme Court hasn't addressed that issue yet, um, but uh, at, at some point that and many other issues will, will come before them. When, when the case was decided, it was, it was quite interesting. Two very conservative uh, federal appellate court judges who were appointed by Ronald Reagan criticized the case, uh, the Heller decision saying that it was going to open the floodgates of litigation on every aspect of gun regulation. And that prediction has certainly come true. Uh, in any state that has almost any restriction from waiting periods to uh, bans on assault weapons or the, the size of the uh, uh, high capacity clips and so on and so forth uh, is, is being sued right now by the NRA or, or other gun organizations. Well, you mentioned a few different aspects of, of weapons that states have attempted to regulate. One is assault weapons. What makes an assault weapon different than another type of gun? Yeah. 
Again, this is, this is a controversial issue. In, in 1994, the uh, uh, federal government passed an assault weapon ban, so-called assault weapon ban. And um, that remained in effect for 10 years and then was allowed to lapse. The, that particular statute um, tried to define what was an impermissible assault weapon and also banned high-capacity magazines. That sort of set the agenda for certain types of regulation. When the, when the law elapsed, though, that was in 2004, and that was all before the Supreme Court had decided this issue about a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. So now the battles that are occurring are in the wake of this constitutional decision, and people are battling over what's a weapon that's in common use and, and therefore constitutionally guaranteed versus what is um, you know, not in common use and therefore a legitimate source of regulation. I think, at least in concept, what you'd like to do is limit the speed in which you could fire and the killing power of the weapon. And that turns out to be a tricky thing to do uh, because what, what the manufacturers did in response to the assault weapon ban was just tweak the guns in very minor ways to get around the actual dictates of the assault weapon ban, but essentially make the gun just as dangerous. And, and indeed, this, is, this has become a, an issue where the NRA will say, look, this whole idea is stupid because this gun, which is not banned, uh, is just as dangerous, and so banning this gun isn't really going to do much. And there is something to, to that argument, in, at least in terms of the bans that have existed in the past. Um, if you could get a, some sort of restriction that would reduce the number of bullets that could be fired very rapidly, I think that would be a good idea. And, and also try to reduce the, the power of the guns. Um, but in the current environment, it's, it's certainly impossible to get that passed at the federal level. And the states that have tried to do this um, are finding themselves in litigation right now. Essentially, is this how quickly can you pull the trigger? Or is it having an automated function of the gun that allows it to, quote, spray uh, a crowd? You know, it seems as though the Supreme Court is, is going to be comfortable with the idea that you can ban auto, fully automatic weapons. Um, but semi-automatic weapons uh, are, are quite dangerous, especially if they have a, a, a great power to them and are accompanied by the ability to fire off, let's say, 30 bullets in a, in a very short time. So take the, the, the Jared Loeffner shooting in Arizona in which Gab Gabby Giffords took a, a blow to the head uh, from, from his weaponry. Um, he had uh, 30 rounds in, in his gun and was able to uh, shoot 30 bullets very, very quickly. And it was only when he had to change the clips that, that he was taken down. Uh, so uh, we also see a similar thing in, in Connecticut uh, in the December 2012 uh, shooting in the school in uh, Newtown where Adam Lanza came in again with uh, uh, these 30 round clips, I think it was, and uh, only when he was uh, uh, struggling to change the clips were I think 11 kids able to run out of the classroom. So 
if he had had, uh, if, if the federal assault weapon ban had been in place and he had had to use a, a smaller magazine, uh, fewer kids presumably would have been killed as, as might have been the case in the, the Loeffner shooting in Arizona. So that's the reason that um, people who are concerned about reducing the number of deaths in these mass shootings think some sort of restriction on the size of the uh, the, the clips is, is an important one to well, have. What's the legitimate purpose? I mean, it's easy to understand why critics would want to reduce this when you're dealing with someone who's mentally unstable or, mm -hmm. uh, or in this case, homicidal. Yep. But why would a, a law-abiding citizen want a clip that could carry 30 bullets? There really is um, no rationale that's compelling for protection, uh, because the number of times that you would need to fire 30 uh, bullets to protect yourself uh, is really so remote that um, it, it really doesn't make sense to think of that as being necessary for self-protection. Um, but you know, a lot of people really enjoy shooting these weapons. It's more fun. Yeah, it, it is a lot more fun. And people who are hunters, you know, it's a sort of tilts the scale towards the shooter rather than the prey if you could shoot 30 bullets very quickly. And it may be a style. It may be uh, trying to emulate the, the look of the, of the military-type gun. Yeah, and, and so much of gun ownership is, is dealing with psyche uh, and, and sort of aesthetics in, in a sense. And, and so, for example, here in Connecticut, uh, I think it was back in uh, 2008 or 2009, uh, a dad had told his eight-year-old son, or seven-year-old son at the time, as soon as you turn eight, we're taking you up to Massachusetts so you can fire an Uzi submachine gun. And uh, when his birthday came, his dad took him up, and uh, there was a state fair in Massachusetts where you could shoot these uh, Uzis, and uh, the gun kicked back, and the boy blew off his, his own head. But you know, the dad the next day said, uh, you know, at least my son did something he really loved, uh, because he really uh, looked forward to, to shooting that gun. And, you know, uh, Arizona, uh, in the summer of 2014, a uh, uh, nine-year-old girl uh, killed the safety instructor who was there when she was shooting a, an Uzi submachine gun. So parents are taking their children to these uh, uh, places to shoot guns because the parents think it's fun and they're trying to um, you know, encourage their children to have a, a similar sort of fun. It, it is a dangerous thing. I would almost think uh, putting a, a weapon that has that sort of recoil capacity in the hands of such a young child is, is almost the heart of recklessness in, in my own view. But, um, it, it, you know, these are, these are not malicious parents, uh, uh, but they are gun lovers and they, they want to share the fun that they have in, in shooting these, uh, these very powerful weapons. So you've touched on one of the strongest criticisms against allowing these powerful weapons, and that's the risk of real tragedy. One of the tragedies that you mentioned is accidents. Mm -hmm. How prevalent is that? You know, luckily gun accidents have been declining, the, the total number, but um, th there really is something almost uniquely horrible uh, about a case like the eight-year-old boy uh, killing himself um, with his father 
standing by taking pictures of his son on his on his eighth birthday because it's it's so avoidable and and so obviously unnecessary. On the other hand, you know the the entire gun issue. A, a troubling one in, in a number of different dimensions, but in terms of like the, the raw number of bodies, um, you know, even if we had the greatest gun regulations in the world, uh, you know, we'd probably save three or four thousand lives a year. Well, well, maybe more if you if you cut into the suicides, which is also a big problem with uh, easy availability of guns. Um, so it's it's not as though it's. Um, uh, a problem of the magnitude of, you know, cigarette smoking, which is killing, you know, maybe 400,000 people a year. Seatbelts. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, interestingly, though, because we took a very concerted public health approach to reducing motor vehicle accidents, uh, that number has, has dropped very precipitously. Uh, it, it would be nice if we could... Uh, you know, get similar drops in, in some of these other categories uh, of gun accidents, suicides, and, and homicides. So you've alluded to the fact that something about this issue makes it incredibly politically difficult. Yeah. But perhaps we could talk a little bit about the types of regulations that, mm -hmm. if they were feasible politically, might make a difference. Yeah. One, one that comes to mind first would be putting an age limit. Um, this would seem to affect the, the stories that you told of the yeah. eight-year-old boy or, or the, the child who accidentally shoots his brother or sister? Yeah, although the biggest problem with, with guns and kids is probably the loaded gun left unattended in the house uh, because kids have an amazing capacity to find things and uh, uh, a, a lot of the awful tragedies occur in, in, in that domain. And of course, this poses a, a, a huge problem for gun owners because the gun owners who are buying guns for self-protection are arguing, I need to have the gun loaded so that I can be able Quick to- Quick access. Yeah, get access to it and, and protect my family from an invasion. Um, but if you are leaving a loaded gun around, then you're exposing yourself to this this other risk of, of the kids finding the, the guns. Perhaps leaving a loaded gun may be more dangerous than it is beneficial. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, thankfully, it turns out in the United States, the, the chance that a stranger is going to come into your home and attack you is, is a pretty unlikely event. It does happen, um, but it is more likely that your teenage son will kill himself in suicide or... or uh, uh, the gun will be used in, in some other improper way. Uh, so, so the trade-off for most people is you'd, you'd probably be safer not having the gun. But there are people in certain categories, maybe a high-risk job or living in a high-crime area, who do feel that, that having a gun uh, makes them feel safer. And, and even a lot of people living in very safe areas uh, feel a psychological comfort in, in having a gun. And of course, anytime people's safety is, is implicated and, and the government tries to interfere with their choices, there's, there's going to be resistance. And, and that's the reason that I think any effort to uh, uh, curtail or restrict uh, access to guns is, is so controversial in the United States because the well, certainly the gun owners and the NRA tries to inculcate a, a sense of fear um, because when crime rates go down, gun sales drop very sharply, 
and so that's bad for business. Um, so if you can either keep the crime rate high or escalate the level of concern, uh, gun sales will, will You're not go suggesting up. that the NRA is uh, considering crime increasing policies? You know, I, I don't think that, that they, they have to, in a sense, uh, as long as they can keep the flow of guns uh, very uh, uh, unregulated, the criminals will get their hands on them and that'll keep the, the murder rate high. So this, this may be the, the stolen guns or, or purchased guns? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the easier the access becomes either through legitimate means or uh, you know, unregulated gun shows or private sales, the easier it is for criminals to get it. And then gun thefts is an amazingly big problem. A million guns uh, or perhaps more are stolen every year in the United States. And every stolen gun is, you know, ipso facto moving a gun from a legitimate holder to a, a criminal holder. And so it is one of the problems uh, that, uh, that exists in the United States because we are such a gun-saturated culture. We keep the criminals very heavily armed and that makes it more necessary to protect yourself. So it is, it is sort of an arms race that, that is encouraged by the NRA. Um, and, and that is the unfortunate side. Okay, a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE, CLE credit in California. The code for this interview with John Donahue is 465732. That's 465732. And now back to the interview. So is there another example, perhaps an international, another country that we could, we could use uh, to measure against? No, probably the most interesting uh, example of gun regulation I know of was the, uh, uh, the Australian experience in the wake of a horrible mass shooting at Port Arthur in 1996, where I think it was 37 individuals were killed by a crazed gunman. And the response was just overwhelming in the society. The, the very conservative prime minister uh, announced that they were going to get rid of guns. He was so fearful at the time that he wore a bulletproof vest when he made the public announcement because the, the gun owners in Australia were very much opposed to this idea. They banned all semi-automatic uh, weapons and uh, prohibited uh, the use of guns for self-defense. Did they ban the sale or did they also ban ownership? They banned ownership and they actually uh, put on a tax to buy back the guns. So this is a level of gun control beyond anything that's ever even been discussed in the United States. That's the, uh, the infamous C word, uh, confiscation. Exactly. Um, and uh, now almost everybody, even, even former gun owners, uh, agree that it, it has improved uh, life uh, considerably in Australia. Um, suicide by gun dropped enormously. Uh, the, uh, uh, the mass shootings, which had been a serious problem in Australia, they had 13 mass shootings um, in, in the years prior to uh, the Port Arthur incident. And uh, in the roughly 18 years since, uh, they have not had a single uh, mass killing. So uh, that was quite extraordinary 
Uh, and of course, the, their murder rate is you know, one-fourth or one-fifth uh, the murder rate in the United States. Um, but there are many reasons that that was possible in Australia and, and potentially uh, easier to do both politically and in terms of the effectiveness of the regulation. Uh, as, as the Prime Minister noted, there was no domestic gun industry in, in Australia. And it's really the gun industry, the manufacturers and sellers of guns that drive policy in the United States in a very big way. Um, so, so that was one advantage that uh, Australia had in, in its capacity to regulate. Um, and also, Australia is an island country, so it's uh, harder to bring guns into the country. Now, nobody really brings guns into the United States because we have so many and we manufacture so many here. But Don't you, we, in fact, export them to oh yeah to illegally to Mexico and yeah legally and illegally, um, but um, yeah we 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 are quite the arms uh, create arms for the rest of the world. In fact, the the recent, uh, relatively recent, a few years ago in in Norway, um, a guy named Anders Brevik uh, went to. Uh, Island where uh, a number of kids were uh, in a summer camp and killed something like 60, 70 children. Uh, just horrific. Uh, this was the worst incident of, yeah, of, 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 of gun, violence. gun violence. Yeah, th this was just almost beyond belief. Um, and he had kept a diary. And at one point, he, he said, I, I envy my American brothers because the European gun laws suck ass was the phrase he used. <laughs> Is that a legal uh, term? Uh, and then he, uh, he, he congratulated America because it allowed him to get the high capacity magazines that he used in the, uh, in the mass shootings. So he ordered them yeah, from he, the United States. Yeah, he got the guns from the United States because uh, they were not available in Europe. And of course that is the message. Um, gun regulation works extremely well if it's uniform. And so when Australia uh, conducted their uh, uh, experiment in gun regulation, the Prime Minister said, everybody's got to buy into this. Uh, they, they had a similar system uh, where there was um, uh, very deregulated gun control, and so in some areas it was strong, some areas weak, but then they created national uh, gun control. And so you see this in the United States. Uh, there was a, a shooting at the Navy shipyard, and um, this was in Virginia? In Virginia, exactly. Uh, well, the shooting actually occurred in D.C., but the gun was bought in Virginia. And uh, D.C. Has, has strict gun control laws, but if you can just cross over a, a border and easily get guns, um, gun regulation doesn't work very well. And so frequently the NRA will, will mention that gun regulation doesn't work. And it is true that if you uh, put... Uh, uh, a lot of loopholes into the regulation or have strict regulation, right, abutting very lenient regulation, then it doesn't work very well. And so, for example, if you probably wanted to think of what, what's one thing that we could do to uh, improve gun violence in America, you'd probably want to have universal background checks. This just means when you go to purchase a gun, there's a waiting period. They look to see if you're a violent criminal or mentally unstable. 
Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't even have to be a waiting period per se. It just means that you plug into the computer and check to see if the person is a prohibited purchaser, either because they're a criminal or they've been adjudicated mentally ill. And that federal law that required background checks and went into effect in 1994 only applied to licensed gun sellers. So if you're not a licensed gun seller, uh, you're allowed to evade that. So you can sell guns without being licensed. Yeah. And so if, if I have a gun and some criminal walks up to me on the street and says, I'll give you $500 for that gun, we don't have to go through any sort of background check. Now, some states have, have required uh, universal background checks. But in terms of federal law, um, private sales do not have to go through the background check. So if, if I want to sell a gun, I can advertise and someone can just call me up and I can sell them the gun without any requirement. Now, if, if I know that you're a criminal and therefore don't have the right to buy the gun, I'm not supposed to sell it to you. So you have an incentive to learn as little as possible. Yeah, but you don't ask a lot of questions if someone comes to buy your gun. Uh, and so that's the way. It's such a porous... Uh, situation and, and sometimes you'll hear people who are very pro-gun say, well, background checks ha haven't done much to stop crime. And it's true that they haven't done nearly as much to stop crime as they could have because everybody buys their guns through the private transaction rather than going to the licensed dealer. Let's talk about gun shows. Well, gun shows uh, are just a manifestation of the private sales transaction. Uh, and anyone who's doing a private sale at, at a gun show uh, evades the requirement to uh, go through the background check. If, if a licensed dealer happens to be at a gun show, he or she still has to go through the background check. So the, the, the gun show is, is not an exemption to the normal rule, but it just facilitates private transactions. So I could go to my local gun shop and buy a large number of weapons and then sell them at a gun show. Exactly, exactly. Uh, again, some states try to restrict how many guns you can buy, one gun a month and things of this nature, but uh, in, in many states uh, it's, it's really uh, a pretty wide open market right now and uh, that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon at a federal level. And in some respects uh, it's hard to think of any public policy that is so demanded by the public and yet cannot be uh, implemented as the universal background check. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.